0: We're in Joshua chapter five tonight. Joshua chapter five, continuing our study through this book. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Jesus, so thankful for your presence. Thankful for this time of worship that we just had, the time of worship that we're going to continue in as we read your word and as you speak to us. God, who are we that our worship directed towards you could somehow have an impact on our hearts and our lives? How gracious are you to even consider us Sinners, honestly, that are just in need of your mercy every day. God, I confess my own inadequacies of my own shortcomings, and just ask you for a touch of your spirit. Tonight, as we study your word, may you speak to us, God, in a way that we can't conjure up, in a way that we can't create, in a way that we It has nothing really to do with us, God. I just pray that we would come to the word with open minds, with a patient heart, and with lives that are intent on living out what you teach us tonight. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Amen. Starting in verse one. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted and there, were, there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circ- circumcised the sons of Israel at G-ba- Gibeoth, Harloth, it's a really hard word to say, forgive me. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who had come out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers and to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua was circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places and in, in the camp until they were healed. Amen. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so the name of this place is called Gilgal, Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. After the... the And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, "Why does my, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Bible college was one of the most formative moments in my life, and and when I look back on the times of the intense study of Scripture and the deep community and the beautiful beginning moments of my own intimacy with Jesus, I can see how it all played such a formative role in my life, not just learning about God, but beginning to know Him personally. You'll probably agree with me that whenever we look back on a time where God was especially real to us, or He revealed Himself in a very special way to us, there are certain moments in that time that stand out above the rest. in In particular, there's one moment that I look back on, one assignment that had an incredible impact, not just on those moments in Bible college, but my future life to come one may think it was an essay on the theology of romans or a research paper on church planting according to acts or a time of reflection in the book of proverbs but it was just a letter while i was in england we were required to take a class that was basically a guy's discipleship and because all the classes that we were taking were clearly not enough they decided to throw this one in in the afternoon Uh, For me, and I think for most of us at that time, this specific class was kind of an afterthought, right? Uh, There was, after a long day of study, and a long day of, you know, intense books of the Bible, uh, we came to this class. And at that point, my mind was completely wasted. I had nothing left. And if I'm honest, all I wanted to do was get to the end of the class so that I could hang out with Ari. (laughs) One day, our teacher in this class asked us to take some time to write a letter to ourselves this letter would detail where we thought God would lead us and how we were going to follow him in the years to come. After a certain amount of years, this professor, this teacher would mail these letters to us so that we could look back on these moments of Bible college and reflect on where we were in that moment. While I wrote this letter, there were two major things happening to me at the time. First, after a life of swearing that I would never enter into ministry, I felt called to ministry. I didn't know where, I didn't know how, but somehow inside of me I knew that God had called me to be a pastor one day. And um, the other thing that was happening to me, and if I'm honest, the more pressing of the two, is I was in love with Ari. Uh, I knew I wanted to marry this girl. However, I had zero money and no way of marrying her, especially because she lived in a completely different country. But these these problems may sound very small to you, for those of you who are much more mature than I am. But to a 19-year-old Bible college kid, these are the problems of life. And I struggled with these circumstances, and these are the circumstances in which I wrote this letter to my future self. About one year ago, I received this letter, and a lot had changed since I wrote it. But I sat on my living living room floor, and I was struck by the confidence in which I wrote this letter. I was confident that certain things were going to come to pass, not because of my own ability to get things done, but because in this time of formation in Bible college, I had learned that when God says something, he means it. And in this letter, this letter was a way for me to tether myself to God himself and to the will of God and to be led by his will. I knew that God would make a way for me and Ari to get married and I knew that he would lead me in my future calling to be a pastor. I didn't have to control the circumstances, but I knew he was going to do it. Even in the midst of this unknown season, I had the confidence in God and I wrote expecting him to come through. Many of us go through times of the unknown, a time of wilderness as sometimes biblical authors like to call it. A time where we have to trust in God's promises, even though our current circumstances don't reflect those promises just yet. These wilderness moments, for me, make me think of what it must have been like to be one of the children born in this 40-year journey in the wilderness for the Israelites. Growing up, being told these incredible stories of the God of Israel saving his people from Egypt. From the frogs jumping all over Pharaoh's bed, to the angel of death passing over your grandparents' house, to the sea closing on top of the greatest army on earth, these were the stories that they grew up with. But then, as their parents told them these stories, I wonder if they ever asked, if all those things are true, why are we walking in circles in the desert? If all of those things really happened, then what are we waiting for to get this promise that we were offered by God? Whatever the response that they received was, whether it was the parents being honest that they had to literally die off before they could enter in the promised land, or just kind of a brush off and just said, just keep following Jesus, or just keep following God, not Jesus, sorry. Now they find themselves in the the point where they are standing on the promised land. Their journey of trusting God through the unknown of the wilderness has now led them to the land of the in-between. Behind them is the miracle of the Jordan. Behind them, God has miraculously caused them to walk through the Jordan and stop the rivers rushing. And in front of them is the giant obstacle of the pagan city Jericho. In front of them is the first of many what would come to be conquest of the land for them to really take the promised land that they were given. No matter what was in front of them though their faith had undoubtedly been strengthened by this crossing of the jordan but apparently they weren't the only ones that were really impacted by the crossing of the jordan both the people called the amorites and the people of the canaanites were so paralyzed by fear that the scripture says they lost heart and there was no spirit left in them i am not sure how these israelites really found out that the canaanites and the amorites were so afraid of them but I do think they learned a powerful lesson in this moment. When you walk in the ways of the Lord, your enemies will notice. And I find it interesting that oftentimes in the, that it is the enemies of Israel that have a better understanding of whether Israel is walking in the ways of God or not. When they walked in the ways of God, the enemies of, of their enemies trembled with fear. And when Israel did not walk in the ways of God, their enemies were full of courage and strength. And I would argue it's the same for the church today. When I was a more immature Christian, I used to think that my enemies were the people that were causing me pain in my life. So I would read the the David's Psalms and I would see where he would say, smite my enemies, oh God, and be like, yes, in Jesus' name, right? But as I grew up and as I, through some humiliating and humbling experiences, God began to teach me that the enemies of my spiritual lives aren't people, believers or unbelievers. Our enemies are the adversary and the powers of darkness the system of ideas and values that's called the world that is in rebellion against God, and the biggest and baddest of all, our shadow side, or to use biblical language, our flesh. There's a spiritual reality that when our lives are tethered to the will of God God and are characterized by a deep love for Jesus, a desire to live like him, humility, service, and a desire to love God's people and all the people around us, our enemies will recognize it. When we walk in compromise and decay, our enemies will laugh at us and rule the day. This is why both Israel and the early church found it essential to train up their people in the ways of God. Historian Alian Crider, while detailing the practices of the early church said, the early church leaders concentrated on developing practices that contributed to a habitus that characterized both the individual Christian and the Christian communities. They believed that when the habitus was healthy, the church would grow. In our story in Joshua, we see that the Israelites understood this reality. They understood that before they could strategize about how to take the whole of Canaan, before they could enjoy the fruits of the land, before they could just bask in the promises of God, they needed to obey all that God had commanded them. They had to prepare spiritually for what was ahead. In the words of a commentator, they knew the tasks of battle ahead were far too important to enter the promised land unprepared spiritually or not walking close to the will of God. For them to walk in the ways of God, they had to begin this preparation by the painful work of sanctification. Sanctification is a concept that means being set apart or sacred. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, God sanctified the seventh day as sacred. In Leviticus, Yahweh tells the entire people of Israel to continue to be sanctified or to be set apart. In the New Testament, sanctification is the process of gradual pur- purification from our sin and formation in spiritual growth that must mark the life of a believer. Or in the words of Paul, we have been set free from sin and now we are to live lives of holiness. The Israelites engaged in sanctification, not just with an eternal agreement with God or some kind of decision they made together, but with a bodily action that marked their lives as holy and set apart to God, and this was called circumcision. I'm not going to bore you tonight with the details of what circumcision is like, I'm going to leave that to your imagination and your memory of when you first figured out what that word meant or you had to tell your children what it meant. But the act of circumcision was not uncommon during this time, uh, this time period. There were other cultures that practiced it also. But for the Israelites, circumcision meant something different. It wasn't just something that their culture did. It had a historical and spiritual significance for their nation as a whole Historically, in Genesis chapter 17, the Lord told Abram that both he who was born in his house and he who was brought, bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So my covenant, be in so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. In Deuteronomy 30, the Lord said that he would circumcise the people's hearts and that they would love him with all their heart and their soul. In Jeremiah, the Lord is calling out to the people who have left him to circumcise their hearts unto the Lord to remove the foreskin of their their heart. Circumcision is the act of removing the flesh to live a life in the spirit. What God was doing in this group of people, these young Israelites who were just beginning their journey into the Promised Land, was he was using a bodily action as an act of formation. Their physical action of circumcision was not just a representation of what was taking place in their heart, It it was a way of leading their hearts in formation to what he was calling them to be we can see the same spiritual truth in worship and kind of an example too. If you notice Tristan, Tony, and Sam, when they're worship, we have amazing worship leaders at this church, right? Amen. When they lift their hands in praise or they kneel and they're worshiping God in that position or they turn their bodies, sometimes like this, just to kind of focus on God, um, you and I in the, in the audience or in the congregation can think, man, they really love this worship stuff. You know, like, they get really into it. They must feel like they just want to worship all the time. This is really cool. I mean, I don't get like that. But what I've learned, and as they've led me in worship, is usually when they lift their hands or they kneel, it isn't because they have some emotional fuzzy feeling on the inside that is leading them in worship. It's actually the opposite. The lifting of their hands is an act of formation and when their hearts or emotions are not feeling it whether it's been a long day or it's difficulty in life or, uh, or they're just their minds are in other places they lift their hands as an act of formation to move their body into worship so that their heart can follow. You get what I'm saying? They lift their hands and they say, God, I may not feel like this, but I don't want my worship to become white noise to you. I'm gonna move my body as a physical action so that my heart can follow behind it. And this is a really important spiritual truth that our bodies and what we do with them actually matter. It deeply matters the way we position ourselves. Another example is prayer. If you're like, you know, you're trying to do some morning prayer and you're kind of like laying on the couch like this, your eyes are closed, How great is your prayer life gonna be? Not that great, yeah. Someone said you're gonna be asleep, right? Your prayer life is not gonna be that great. But if you're sitting upright, hands in a, and you know, you don't have to do it like this, but this is what I like to do, hands up in an act of surrenderance, in attention, with attention to God, I bet you your prayer life is gonna be a lot better. What we do with our bodies is an act of formation that brings our heart in also. And what I've learned from the example of our amazing worship leaders is that when I don't feel like worshiping, those are the moments where I need to raise my hands the most. I'm not the most expressive person in the world, but these are the moments where I'm like, I need to let go and let God take over this worship service. I need to let go and give everything in me, outside and in, so that I can be formed and sanctified in the way God is calling me to be. Oswald Chambers once stated that if we've experienced regeneration, we must not only talk about it, but exercising it, working out what God has worked in. We must show it in our fingertips, in our tongue, in our bodily contact with other people. And as we obey God, we'll find we have a wealth of power on the inside. The children of Israel sought to sanctify their whole beings in the preparation for the new land. But as they began with the painful work of circumcision, circumcision, their sanctification turned into a time of remembrance and celebration. I think one of the most common misconceptions of God is that he doesn't like to have a good time. Often he gets pictured as some grumpy old narcissist in the sky who likes to ruin every party he possibly can. But the celebrations in scripture, the detailed celebrations, and especially of Passover, proves the opposite. In this specific Passover, uh, the first in the promised land, there are two two noteworthy things um, that take place. First is the remembrance of what God had done for them up until this point. Especially in the land of Egypt, as most of you know, uh, the act of Passover was celebrated on the uh, was a remembrance of the night that God commanded Moses and the people of Israel to kill a lamb and sprinkle its blood on the doorposts, so that way when the angel of death came over their houses, looking for the firstborn of the Egyptians, they would pass over the house. Right? You guys know this. And it is a beautiful um, forecasting or foretelling of what is going to happen in the life of Jesus, our lamb who was sacrificed for our sins and because of his blood being shed, we are now brought into the life of the Savior. And as they celebrated this, so they were celebrating what God had done. They had done for their fathers and their mothers and their grandparents, the people who had not made it out of the wilderness because of their own sin. But as they were were celebrating, I have no doubt that this was giving them a strength and a faith for what God will do for them in the land of of promise. Remember, they're on the the plains of Jericho. A large pagan city is standing in their path. So this moment of Passover, this moment of remembrance was more than just a celebration for them. It It was a strengthening of their faith. It was a strengthening to say, we've seen God move. We've heard the stories. God, will you do it again? Will you please do it again? The second noteworthy thing of this Passover is the day after and the day after that, they began to celebrate with the fruit of the land. They began to enjoy the actual land of promise. And also, the miracle of manna ceased to happen, ceased to be in existence. I think this is really important because God was saying, and this is what I think he was saying, he was saying, I don't want you just living on past miracles. I don't want you living on the miracles of the wilderness. I wanna do new things in you. I wanna take your faith and strengthen it. So the miracle of manna is now over. And now enjoy what I had promised you from the beginning. There's a moment here where God is saying to the people of Israel, "Uh, look, You can remember all you want and I do want you to remember. I do want you to to look back on what has happened for your father and your mother and your grandparents. But I wanna do something special in you too. I wanna do something that hasn't been done yet. And in this moment of celebration, they were looking not only to what God had done, but they were enjoying what God was doing in them in this moment. But not all of the Israelites were completely abandoned in their celebration with God or what God had done. There seems to be one person that had a fight on his mind. Let's read the climax of this story and starting in verse 13 again. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, no. First glancing at this story, uh, it would seem like this is an incredible triumph, not only for Joshua, but also for the people of Israel. Uh, Here in front of Joshua is the great city of Jericho, and then right next to that is um, what a lot of commentators and theologians believe to be a Christophany, uh, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity in bodily form prior to the incarnation of Jesus not only is this god but he also declares himself to be the commander of the lord's armies and on the eve of a great battle i'm not sure what else you would want from god here's the commander of the lord's armies standing before me the pagans are out there like this is the most perfect situation ever right And in this moment, Joshua, you know, bows down and worshiped and is reminded right before the walls of Jericho, come tumbling down, that his God is powerful and almighty. And you and I are reminded in our times of need that God is victorious and the great conqueror. But if you take a deeper and more patient look at this scripture, I think questions begin to arise. And it's easy to read the stories backwards, especially for us who know what happens next. We have to, often when we read this story, what we end up doing is we read with the victory of Jericho already in our minds. But Joshua didn't know that the victory had happened yet. And when we do this, we have to put ourselves in the place of Joshua, and we get kind of a different picture when we read this story. Instead of celebrating Passover and enjoying the fruits of the new promised land, where do we find Joshua? We find him looking at the great city of Jericho the next obstacle in their way. He stares out at this city with its large walls and its soldiers keeping watch and its lanterns flickering in the distance. And what could possibly be on his mind? I wonder if the question, how is this going to work, could have crossed his mind. Could it be that Joshua stood in the greatness of Jericho and he possibly felt anxious in the midst of a situation that was unknown? Could it possibly be that uh, as he was standing there, he was thinking, thinking to himself, how are you going to do this, God? But then, Joshua realizes that he's not alone. Standing before him is a man with a drawn sword, sword, and not just any man, mind you. This man was nothing like any that Joshua had ever seen. It was like there was fire in his eyes, and the sword in his hand was mighty and powerful. Uh, this man was not safe. And Joshua, not wanting to be on the wrong side of this guy, decides to ask him, Hey, are you for us or are you for our enemies out there? No, but I am the commander of the Lord's armies. Joshua falls on his face, knowing that this man commands the the same armies of the Lord that he and the people of Israel worship. They had just finished their sanctification to him, they had just finished celebrating Passover. This was the moment. God, what do you want me to do? Take off your shoes for this land is holy. No doubt, right before, right before the, the man said that, what was passing through Joshua's mind was all the past miracles that he had been through, the sun being held in the sky as Moses held up his arms, the Jordan drying up, the story of the sea enclosing on Pharaoh and his, and his armies, the angel of death wiping out all the firstborn of Egypt, and this was God's response? Take off your sandals for this place is holy? Excuse me? Joshua must have thought. You're not gonna go out and win this battle for us? You're not gonna go out and just kinda wipe them out really quick so that we don't have to lose a single man in battle? You're not gonna go call your buddy the angel of death and do this for us? You want me to take my shoes off? And you're calling this land, a land with a pagan city right there that we don't control wholly? How often in our lives, Do we have similar questions to God in the midst of our own doubt and pain? How often does it seem like when we have something, a struggle in our lives, and we want God to snap his fingers and fix it for us, and he doesn't, we wonder what's God really up to? In the midst of our financial struggles, we hear stories about people getting checks in the mail, and those stories just flood our minds, and we impatiently wait for God to do the same, checking the mailbox every day, and then nothing happens. One of our children is lost and searching for a love that's other than God's. We wait for the miracle of the prodigal son or daughter to come back and then nothing happens. A loved one is laying on their deathbed and we know that God can even raise the dead back to life so we pray and we wait for a miracle and then nothing happens. Or maybe for you the situation isn't even that drastic. You just feel miserable and unhappy with your life and you're waiting for God to show up and make things better but nothing's happened. When we read this story the right way way around, we find this isn't a story of a great success or a victory at all. This is a story about the in-between land. This is a story that the, the miracle hasn't taken place yet. The promised land is not Israel's. And even though Joshua and his people have done everything right, circumcision, keeping the Passover, all the commander of the Lord's armies has to say is, take off your shoes for the place you're standing is holy. This story looks a lot like yours in my life. Saved by Jesus, a new allegiance to him, a new heart, a promised new life, but still messy, full of pain, full of suffering, and if we're honest, sometimes full of doubt. And all Jesus has to say to us is, take off your shoes for the place you're standing is holy. Your interpretation of these simple words has a lot to do with your perception of God Either God in this moment is requiring Joshua to be reverent to his almightiness instead of focusing on the problem ahead. And kind of a push your anxieties out of the way and be reverent to my transcendent being. This is possible, but I think there's a better interpretation. This could be an invitation for love. When you come home after a long day or you walk into a family member's house or you walk into a very close friend's house, normally, unless they have that super nice vinyl flooring, uh, you take your shoes off because you feel at home. You feel safe in this presence. You show comfort in your desire to stay a while, if you know what I mean. And I tend to think this is what God is saying. In this, in, in this moment of the unknown, in this moment full of anxiety and doubt in Joshua's, possibly in Joshua's life, I think God is inviting Joshua to enjoy his loving presence. Instead of giving us what we want all the time, God's motivations seem to be different. In the midst of our biggest struggles, he always seems to be inviting us into more love rather than let me solve this for you. Whenever I have talked to people about holy ground moments or whatever they use that, that term, without a doubt, and if this is different for somebody else, that's great, but so far in my experience talking to other people, they're always referring to a place of deep intimacy with Jesus, a place where God met them in a special way that they hadn't experienced before. Tonight, I don't have a silver bullet answer for your doubts. I think the Bible is more honest about doubts than the churches sometimes. I don't always know why God does some things and he doesn't do it for others. I don't know why God heals some people and doesn't heal others. I don't know why God doesn't stop the war in Ukraine with a snap of his fingers or cause all the races in the world to dry up. I don't understand why God seems to hold back on his ability to solve our problems. And oftentimes I feel just like his disciples. Their perception of the Messiah was this great conqueror, somebody like the commander of the Lord's armies, coming and uh, as the angel of death maybe, and wiping out the entire Roman Empire and lifting Israel up into their, the, what was promised their ancestors, but that wasn't Jesus. He came as a suffering servant, proclaiming a kingdom that had nothing to do with political or social power and was made up of weak and foolish things, one that allows people the free ability to choose to love God or to not love him, And one that gives everybody the free choice to say, I want a life characterized by God or a life full of my own desires. I think we all have moments where we doubt and we wonder why. Why, God, is this like, why is the world like this? Why don't you exercise your power you're all powerful why don't you snap your fingers and make everything better why don't you make everybody all the doubters in the world say oh god is real this makes sense now philip yancey when writing on the character of god and why he chooses to restrain his abilities to conquer sin and fix the world says i believe god insists on such restraint not because no sorry I believe God insists on such restraint because no pyrotechnic displays of omnipotence will achieve the response he desires. Although power can force obedience, only love can summon a response of love, which is the one thing God wants from us and the reason he created us. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself, Jesus said. And in case we miss the point, John adds, He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. God's nature is self-giving. He bases his appeal on sacrificial love. What we often desire in our lives and in our moments of pain is a God who snaps fingers and fixes everything. We desire a God who makes our children and family members obey him and gives us a life free of suffering and pain. A God who lets the world know I am real and silences every doubter in a moment. But that's not who God is or what he has set out to accomplish. Our God doesn't just allow us to go through through suffering, he desires to walk with us through it. He doesn't just allow us to grieve, but he grieves alongside of us. He doesn't just allow pain, but he understands it. He doesn't desire for people to simply believe he exists, but he desires a radical, uncontrolled, loving relationship, the only thing that can actually bring heart change. Frederick Buechner once said, We all want to be certain, we all want proof, but the kind of proof we tend to want scientifically or philosophically, demonstrable proof that would silence all doubts once and for all, would not in the long run, I think, answer the fearful depths of our need at all. For what we need to know, of course, is not just that God exists, not just that beyond the steely brightness of the stars, there is some cosmic intelligence that keeps this whole show going, but that there is a God right here in the thick of our day-by-day lives who may not be writing messages about himself in the stars, but who in one way or another is trying to get messages through our blindness as we move around down here, knee-deep in the fragrant muck and misery and marvel of the world. It is not objective proof of God's existence we want, but whether we use religious language or not, the experience of God's presence, that is the miracle we're really after. That is also the miracle we really get. As I look back on my life, and as I look at that letter from Bible college, I don't think it was the reality of God's existence that made me confident he would lead me in the journey of life. I don't think it was the classes I was necessarily taking. I don't think it was the deep community. I think it was, I I don't even think it was hearing other people's miracle stories of God speaking to them. I think what kept me confident that God was going to do something was that I had seen and tasted his love. I had known it in the times of the unknown. I had known it in the times of trial. I had known it in the times of joy. I had known it in my life. I knew that God, Love me. A God who fixes everything for us is not the obj- will never be the object of our love. A God who walks hand in hand with us through every trial and temptation is the God who's worthy of our love. To our doubts, our fears, our anxiety, our pain, our questions, God's answer is simple: I know you're struggling. I know your pain. I know it seems like the world is falling apart, but take off your shoes for the ground on which you stand is holy. meaning. I want you to experience my presence in a different way the deadbeat job that you work at can be holy ground the room where your baby just won't go to sleep can be holy ground the rehab rehab center that you go to can be holy ground the closet in your room that is the only quiet place that you can possibly find can be holy ground the kitchen that you clean can be holy ground anything and everything can be holy ground when god is there everything can be holy ground when we everything can be holy ground when we bring our anxiety, doubt, sin-filled lives and say, God, I just want more of you. I just want a little bit more of you. I wonder if in this moment, as Joshua was looking back, and after Jericho had fallen and after they had taken the promised land, I wonder if he looked back on this moment, a moment where he experienced radical love A moment where he experienced God's presence, possibly like he had never experienced up until this point. A holy ground moment in his life. A moment where God didn't solve his problems, the miracle hadn't happened yet, but this was the defining moment for him. A moment where he knew the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the people that came before him, loved him just just as much as he loved the others. This too can be for us a moment. Wherever you're at in life, wherever you work, wherever you live, whatever you do, whatever your hobby is, you can have the same moment. All you have to do is open yourself to the loving arms of Jesus. I am not saying that all your doubts and questions will be answered, but I can tell you that there is so much love in the holy ground of God, amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. Tonight we give ourselves to you. We give ourselves knowing that you love us so much. We apologize for trying to fix everything and making you into our image sometimes, God. Kind of into like the fix it, do that type of servants that we portray onto you, and God is so disrespectful. We are so sorry. We just want your love tonight. We come with our anxieties, we come with our fears, we come with our struggles, imperfect human beings needing your grace to carry us through. Help us live the lives you're calling us to live. Tonight we're gonna end in a couple different ways. First, I wanna just give you an opportunity to pray with God to have a moment of response, to give your doubts and fears and anxieties to Him, or just to bask in His loving embrace. Take a moment tonight.